Previously on Beta. We all lose. We all lose, yeah. There's no winning there. That comedian, by the way, and I think we should put that in air quotes. I'm standing here. You make the move. You make the move. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, comedian Lori Kilmartin gives us the ins and outs of her stand-up special, Sis, Woke, Grief, Slut. Some things aren't full jokes. I, I often open with a little joke it, a joke at or a joke lit or something where it's just like a, a little hello. Also, writer and actor Priya Gunn sits down with us to talk about her very timely debut novel, Your Driver is Waiting. I grew up very working class. I grew up very angry. And I am a racialized person. But first, Ed Zwick. Ed is an Academy Award and Emmy Award-winning producer, director, and writer. He's also had a hand in creating two groundbreaking TV series, 30-something and My So-Called Life. Ed splashed onto the scene when he directed the Oscar-winning Civil War drama, Glory, starring Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. Ed received another Oscar for the Western, Legends of the Fall, which featured Brad Pitt, Julia Ormond, and Sir Anthony Hopkins. Unfortunately, there's not enough time for me to mention all the other prestigious awards Ed has earned. If these were the Oscars, the orchestra would have played me off by now. Luckily, he can put his resume in book form as he has with his captivating memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, My 40-something Years in Hollywood. He started as a PA for Woody Allen in the 70s. That led to a spot in the prestigious American Film Institute Director's Program, where he met his longtime and still producing partner, Marshall Herskovitz. As Ed says, meeting Marshall changed his life. Well, you know, there are certain people that you encounter at different moments of your life that mark you. And those relationships didn't happen to me in college. Uh, it just started to happen to me when I came here. Obviously, it was based on admiration. He was hugely talented already. I could tell that way ahead of where I was, I thought. Very kind. We had a lot in common. We talked about our families. A lot of what the program had to do with was actually digging into some personal history and trying to apply that to the kind of film you wanted to make. And we found a lot of common ground as we began to talk. Before we knew it, we were collaborators. Hmm. And it's been much more than that, though. I mean, we're talking about a very long time now, and I'm very proud of the work we've done together. But what I'm proudest of, really, is this friendship has just grown. And it's been as much about learning from each other about families and about grief and about big children and about failure and all the things that life throws at you having somebody who is that close to laugh about it and to cry with you and you know just we've been that to each other now and it finds its way into the work and then we also separate at times and do work on our own yeah it's almost like a, would it be fair to describe it as kind of a brotherly relationship do you feel kind of definitely feel like yeah. yeah i have two wonderful sisters but never had a brother i certainly think of him as as such yeah, yeah, and that's clear in the way you talk about him. That, that, that's great, and the way you write about it in the book, that your relationship, your friendship. You and Marshall went on to create the hit TV series 30-something. You were on your own dramatic roller coaster in real life as well. How did you draw from those experiences, those real-life experiences, for the show? Well, we had no choice. 
<laughs> I mean, when, when you're confronted by life as it happens when you have kids and trying to, to run a television show, they inevitably blend. You know, the issues of marriage and ambition and work and the pressures and the need for bonding with each other, it, it just all tended to become a blur. And no one had done it for television. In television at that moment, everybody was a doctor or a lawyer or a cop. And we thought, that's just not what we're interested in. We're interested in the smaller moments that aggregate into bigger moments. And so we decided to sort of narrow our focus and to try to find what was epic and what was emotional in, in the familiar. I dreamed about being a painter since I was a little girl. And now you're an artist. Ellie, don't you get it? No, Nancy. Well, it is back. And it is growing inside of me. And I can feel it dark and cold like a stone, and I can't stop it. Nancy, you can lick this thing. Who are you to tell me to keep fighting? I love you. Well, don't. And the funny thing is now that's what television seems to do all the time. Yeah. So did you get pushback from the network executives that you were trying to do, that you and Marshall were doing something different with 30-something? You know, it's funny. Uh, we've, we've often done very well working for networks who are in the toilet. And, <laughs> and I think at, at that time, ABC was really at the bottom. And it was not pushback. The pushback came a little bit later when we revealed that our sensibilities were darker, I think, than the network had intended. I mean, I like to think that there was a lot of fun in it and silliness, too. But as we went into some of that terrain, there was a little pushback. And we were very full of ourselves, very young, and basically said, what's that line? Um, I would prefer not to from that uh, oh, Melville from, story. Uh, Bartleby the Scrivener. Bartleby the Scrivener. Yeah, Bartleby we were, the Scrivener. We were, we, were yeah. Bartleby, we were Bartleby the screenwriters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was also around this time when you got a chance to direct the Civil War drama, Glory. You say that there was a moment rehearsing that marked the true beginning of your career as a director. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think when you start, you're very concerned with control and of over-determining things with the actors, you're so full of anxiety that it's, it blinds you or, or clouds your vision. And I think when I saw what was happening with Denzel and with Morgan and Andre and Jimmy, I realized that I was in the presence of something really extraordinary. And if I was smart, I would just shut up and let it happen. What about you there, Buck? What about you from? Yeah, I'm around Tennessee. Yeah, I ran away when I was 12 years old. I ain't never looked back. Well, what you doing since then? I run for president. <coughs> I ain't win, though. <laughs> Sometimes you find yourself in a, in a situation where things are happening that are bigger than you are. And it was the smartest thing I ever did to allow some of that to influence me. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Glory features a powerful performance from Denzel Washington. He won an Oscar for his role. How did you two collaborate? You know, th that was the first of several movies that Denzel and I did together, so we didn't know each other well. And I wouldn't say that there was great affinity yet. I think he takes his work very seriously and prepares and yet the nature of the character that he was playing is very removed from everyone else in that group. Wanted to say something, sir, but I... Go ahead. See, um, 
I ain't fighting this war for you, sir. And he very much kept to himself during the shooting of it. Our, our friendship really began pretty much after that. You know, in success, there's an opportunity to have a bit of a valedictory and we traveled with the movie together. I actually remember we went to Berlin together. It was the week after the wall came down. And it was so thrilling. We went to the East with the movie and it was the first American movie shown in the East in this people's hall of 20,000 people. And there was a movie about people seeking their freedom. And it was just, you know, it was full of moments like that. And then he wins the Oscar and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, it was, and, and, and thereafter, obviously our families got to know each other and, and a real friendship developed. Mm-hmm. One of the most powerful scenes in Glory, if not the most powerful, is is the whipping scene, and you write about that in the in the book about how you worked with Denzel on that. Can you tell us that anecdote? We were in Savannah, Georgia. We were only miles from a place where black men as slaves were kept in chains. Not long before, historically, there were ghosts, and everybody was aware of them. And Denzel is a spiritual man, and he was feeling that. And also the humiliation of standing there, being whipped by a white man in front of hundreds of of other men was very difficult. And we did a take, and it was fine. I absolutely could have moved away. But I just felt there was something more. But rather than talking to Denzel, I talked to John Flynn, who was John Finn, who was the guy with the whip. And it was... It wasn't a real whip, it was a piece of chamois attached to a, you know, a stick, but nonetheless, it stung a little bit. And all I said to him is, John, this time, just don't stop till I say cut. And as it went past what Denzel was expecting, it became a very different experience where the control was taken away from him as it would have been taken away from him in real life. And I was sitting there next to the dolly grip and I just waited for that moment when I sensed it happening and I tapped him on the shoulder and we pushed in and happened to get there right at that moment when that tear came down and it was magic. He knew, I mean, he's so smart. And even if that, if, even if he might have been angry that I was in some sense manipulative, he also knew that it was working. And that's mm-hmm. what a brilliant movie actor does. He can somehow maintain those two realities at the same time. Yeah, and great call on your part. And so, as you just mentioned, he, he didn't, Denzel didn't, wasn't mad at you for doing that, right? It didn't affect no, your relationship. No, I mean, he might, there might have been some, there might have been some peak for a moment, but no, mm-hmm. he, you know, <laughs> he's just so intuitive and he has such, a sense of what's happening. And that takes extraordinary poise and confidence and concentration not to break and say, what are you doing? Or that's wrong. Or, or, and also it was, it was actually a subordination of his ego at that moment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. Denzel would not be the last acting legend you would work with. Your next movie project was Legends of the Fall with acting heavyweights Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins. What was your approach to working with them? Well, they're very different. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is a man from the National Theater, you know, schooled in the classics. And Brad worked his way up from Missouri without training to begin and and had was very intuitive. And so it was a little bit difficult sometimes finding that common ground. The truth is, is that Sir Anthony Hopkins loves Westerns. Yeah, I recognize him. You got him, James. 
This fellow passed by here, uh, maybe four, maybe five years ago. Did some work here. He was on his way to San Francisco, he said. He's hoping to book a passage on a boat to Australia. Australia? What exactly is he wanted for, sir? Well, he, uh... That would be of a private nature, sir. Private nature? It's a public office you hold there, Sheriff, isn't it? Gentlemen. All he'd wanted his whole life, as it turned out, was to be in a Western. And he could do imitations of uh, Lee J. Cobb and, uh, oh, God, Robert Ryan and uh, Wayne and, uh, I mean, Jimmy Stewart. And so I think, actually, it was his good nature that helped us find some sort of voice where it would all work together. Hmm. Interesting. And you didn't find out that Anthony was a fan of Westerns until you were shooting? In rehearsal, uh, oh, actually, rehearsal. As he, it was where he was doing wardrobe and he tried on the clothes and I saw him sitting out in the field smoking this pipe. And I just went out to say, what are you up to? He goes, this is the best moment of my career. It wow. was just, it was, he was just a happy camper. That's great. That's great. While you were prepping Legends of the Fall, you helped launch another groundbreaking TV series, My So-Called Life. This show starred Claire Danes. However, she was only 14 at the time, and you said that her limited availability was a blessing in disguise. How so? Claire was actually only 13 when we first met her, and nobody had ever done a show about teenagers with teenagers because they're labor laws. Labor laws oblige you to have them in school a certain number of hours, only to be able to work a certain number of hours. And we wanted her to be the star of the show. So how could we do that? And the answer was to expand our vision to write stories that were much more substantive about the supporting characters, about her parents. And that then allowed us to put Claire in the center of things, but still like be in the center of a constellation or of a wheel. And she was the the hub. She's gone. I cannot believe that you let this go this long. Patty, I forgot, all right? Oh, come on, why don't you just admit it? You want her to go to this stupid concert. All right, I admit it, okay? Look, I saw The Grateful Dead when I was 15 years old. It was one of the eight best nights of my life. It's something I wanted to give her. Oh, fine, leave, just like he does. You leave my father out of this. What? What'd you say? It's not worth repeating. But there were all these wonderful sort of spokes that allowed us to fill in that time when she couldn't be with us. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Winnie Holtzman was a, a huge help, right, in terms of writing for yeah, I mean, so Winnie, Life? Yeah, we, we, we met Winnie. Um, her brother was, um, Ernie Holtzman was our cinematographer for a couple of years on 30-something. And he said, oh, well, my sister's a writer. And your response to that is, oh, yeah, 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 great. <laughs> it's just what I want. It's another script. But we read her script, and it was wonderful. And then we invited her to join the show, 30-something. And when 30-something was done, we just began to talk about doing something else. It was a couple of years after, obviously. And then Winnie, it was quite fascinating. She began to write as if it was Angela's journal mm. to get into the character. There's something about Sunday night that really makes you want to kill yourself. Especially if you've just been totally made a fool of by the only person you'll ever love. And you have a geometry midterm on Monday, which you still haven't studied for. Because you can't, because Brian Krakow has your textbook and you're too embarrassed to even deal with it. And your little sister's completely finished with her homework. 
which is just like so simple and mindless. A child could do it. Mom, Dad, I finished my report on crustaceans. And that creepy 60 minutes watch that sounds like your whole life ticking away. And then she showed it to us, and we looked at it. We said, "We need this. Is the show?" <laughs> you say that the only true way to measure the success of a movie is through time. So, if you applied that scale to my so-called life, how would it fare? Well, I would say to you that every 35-year-old girl in America, every interesting 35 or 39-year-old girl in America, was really moved by it. I can pretty much predict that that's going to be a common theme. But the real thing is how it has continued. It still exists on Hulu, and there's still people seeing it, and you can never predict. That's a show that we only shot 17 episodes over two years. And yet has had this life of thirty years. I think because adolescence is one of those eternal, evergreen stories. In 2010, you returned to the rom-com genre with Love and Other Drugs. It starred Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal. You were going through a life crisis as you were making it. How did you deal with that?、Uh, everything in life changes you. Love changes you. Good fortune changes you, and sickness changes you, and yet these all came together at the same time. Where I had just gone through a very serious、uh, illness at the time that I was making a movie, coincidentally about someone going through a very serious illness, it lent it a certain gravitas, but it also was full of joy for me because I was better, <laughs> and I was looking upon all of that opportunity as a kind of blessing, as a kind of.、Uh, I mean, I think I, I, I wrote. I said I felt like I was playing with house money. I'd never been so happy working, and、uh, and that experience with them was was great for that reason. And you're still doing well. You have you you've like yeah, fully thank, recovered. Yeah, thank you. From- yeah, I mean, I've, I it's it's not something that you ever that phrase when you're driving a car and you say objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear. Well, it's kind of like that with illness when you've had something that that, that can recur, and it、yeah. it has recurred, and it's also been dealt with again. So. That's great. That's my life. Yeah. yeah, you kept meticulous notebooks throughout your entire life, and that must have been very helpful in writing your memoir. I'm curious, though, what will your notebook next year say? Wow. Well, I'm about to take this book tour, you know, and I'm doing these kind of conversations. You know, writing the book posed interesting questions that I had to ask of myself: Can I be authentic? Am I capable of looking at things with some objectivity, and can I be dispassionate about telling the truth about things? And sometimes that meant things that were hurtful. Sometimes it meant things that were shameful. Sometimes it meant things that were self-glorifying. But I was just determined to see if I could do that, and to the best of my ability, I tried. Yeah, Ed Zwick, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on hits. Flops and other illusions. My forty-something years in Hollywood. It's a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at the trials and tribulations of life as a movie director. Well, thank you very much for having me. Ed Zwick is an award-winning director, writer, and producer. He's also the author of Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions. My forty-something years in Hollywood. Find out more about Ed at wpr.org/beta. No one from MSNBC, by the way, ever called to apologize or check in on me. It was pretty 
pretty crazy. Coming up, comedian Lori Kilmartin joins us to talk about going viral for all the wrong reasons and her stand-up special, Cis Woke Grief Slut. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Comedian Lori Kilmartin is now officially a member of the illustrious Beta three-time guest club. She's been making people laugh in LA for more than 30 years. Lori's stand-up special, Sis Woke Grief Slut, makes sure she'll be making you laugh for 30 more. Well, at least another hour. As she always does, Lori brings the funny with suitably Kilmartin-esque jokes, jokettes, and jokelets, like reading Anne Frank to her young son, going viral for all the wrong reasons, and why she's a big ally of trans women. To hear Lori tell it, her special isn't anything special. She's a throwback comedian used to doing road work, and she says this special just happens to capture her latest material. I'm a comedy club act, right? So I, I was just thinking about this this morning, like the notion of a special, it, it, it almost makes it sound like a theater piece, like a one person show theater piece. And I mean, I think because I write and I obviously write in my own voice, everything's going to have some sort of theme throughout, but I wasn't consciously writing a version, you know, like a Nanette or something, you know, where there's a through line through it, you know, that you can see that like it's a novel. It's not. I'm a club comic. You have a bit early on about reading Anne Frank to your son to advance his reading. How did that go? Well, that is based in truth. He doesn't like to read. He's more of a comic book guy. And so for a time, I was always like reading books that were ahead of him in hopes that somehow words would permeate his brain. <laughs> like at about page 10, she gets her period. And my son goes, what's a period? And I thought, oh, well, this is a good time to learn. So I said, well, when girls are Anne's age, they begin to menstruate. And that means once a month, blood flows uncontrollably out of their vaginas (laughs) for four to 15 days. (laughs) Depending on the girl, you know? And then he calms down, and I pick up the book again, and he goes, wow, I hope no more bad things happen to Anne Frank. That was how we learned about it, about menstruation, was through, you know, us stumbling upon it in reading the diary of Anne Frank. So that story is true, and he was really grossed out. Your son finally got a smartphone, and it sounds like he wanted one for years but couldn't pass your test. Can you share your smartphone gauntlet with us? I just wanted my son to be able to do normal research uh, like we used to do in libraries where you'd have to go to the library or, I mean, if you had encyclopedias at home, amazing. I didn't for a time, but then my mom discovered Funk and Wagnalls and we would buy them one letter at a time at Safeway. So it it took us two years to get the entire set. Basically I was only up on, you know, a through say J answers for about a full year in school. And then, um, As the, the alphabet progressed, then my knowledge did as well. Uh, but I have all my old encyclopedias. So I, I just made my son learn to look things up in the encyclopedia first before I gave him a, a Google machine, which is basically the iPhone. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I always I always associate Funk and Wagnall with uh, Ronan Martin's laughing. <laughs> um, I don't remember that, but I do remember that when we upgraded to Britannica, it felt like our family had moved up a economic class. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Like I think we got a full set at once from one salesman instead of the uh, janky, uh, you know, volume by volume at the grocery store. Yeah, and thank you for using the word janky. I appreciate that you use the word janky. Seriously. Oh, and while I'm at it, since I've kind of gone off topic a little bit, I love that you use the word joquette because I'm always adding et to things. I can't think of an example, and I love that you're doing that too. I probably stole it from you. Some things aren't full jokes. I I often open with a little joquette or a joklet or something where it's just like a a little hello. I don't want to go full steam joke right off the bat, you know, startle people with structure. (laughs) So you just kind of dabble for a little bit and get people used to the sound of your voice and how you look and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good instinct on your part. You tell the story in your special about how you went viral. What made you go viral? Well, it was that abortion joke on MSNBC and it got clipped out. It wasn't even a great joke. You know, it was just like a little comment riff or whatever. And then somebody at MSNBC put it up on this site called Mediate. It's like a clip site. And um, they put guests swear she'd have an abortion or whatever. And it and it's like, no, comedian joked. That would have changed my life. But they made it sound like I was uh, Nancy Pelosi's spokesperson. And uh, I was, uh, you know, admitting that I would seek out to get pregnant to have a board. It was just like such a misreading of what I did. And of course, the right wing went all the way with that. And then I I went viral. I was on featured uh, against my will on Sean Hannity's show. And Lara Trump and Pam Bondi started calling me horrible names. No one asked me to comment. You know, they just decided to slam my inbox full of uh, death threats. A lot of pro-lifers telling me I should have been aborted. I'm like, oh, so you can joke about it, but I can't? Okay. So the right wing went insane, okay? The next day was unbelievable. I got doxxed on Facebook. Somebody posted my address on Facebook. Yeah, that somebody was my brother. He's like, she's always been like this. Get her. Yeah, it was a, it was an intense couple days, and then it, I thought I was gonna be killed, and then it went away. It was really weird. It was like a, a swarm of bees, and they hovered around me, wasps maybe, and then they they went to some other place they were directed to by right wingers on Facebook. Mm, yeah, I'm sorry you had to go through that. You, you joke about the wrath you faced in your special, but on a human level, were you as calm? Uh, no, I was pretty worried. Honestly, I mean, I there were some stalking things. Someone posted my address. I, I just couldn't believe that all this came from one little line. Luckily, I have a pit bull. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I got a home security system and I had to pay for this other stuff. I mean, it did cost me quite a bit of money. No one from MSNBC, by the way, ever called to apologize or check in on me. It was pretty, pretty crazy. So would it be fair to say that MSNBC expected that, was hoping for that to, to happen by putting it up on I'm that sure. site? Yeah. I'm yeah. sure they were. But the yeah. fact that they never reached out because it was pretty pretty uh, intense and they knew it, it's like, wow, okay. Yeah, and they're, what... they're the ones that called me a guest, like, a, you know, and not comedian. Because I think when you, you know someone's a comedian and they're making a joke, 
you know, then you, you kind of ignore it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause then if you're right, if you, that makes you look humorless, but if you, you know, if when it's not presented that way and they're not that good at jokes anyway, they, they take it seriously. So mm. that's kind of what happens. Yeah. That's very disappointing. I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that. You're a Thanks. big, yeah, you're welcome. You're a big ally of trans women. Can you tell us why? I, w- I wouldn't have even touched that topic, but so many uh, male comics are doing whole specials on trans women. It's like, why? Wh- why are you coming after them? And it's not really original material or thought. And, um, you know, they are incredibly vulnerable right now. I mean, legislatively, people are coming after them. They're used as pinatas right now in the legal system or with politics. And and in you know murder there it have a there's a high murder rate it's it's just like it's you know we're after we're really going after them okay well i just wanted to go well not not all of us but the real reason i love them and this is selfish i have size 11 feet and they've opened up a whole new world of shoes to me <laughs> go ahead gawk look if you have to i wouldn't be wearing heels if it wasn't for trans women, all right? I'd be in clogs right now. <laughs> My whole life, every time I've gone into a women's shoe store, I've held up a cute little heel and said, excuse me, do you have this in an 11? <laughs> That's not how I said it. That's how they heard it. I mean, as a monolith, of course, there's ind- everyone's an individual, but... Here's why cis women like myself should be grateful. There are trans women and, uh, and we, they, we, we should be, uh, their greatest allies. Yeah. Very well said. When, when we had you on for corset, you told us that you had a whole new chunk of material about your mom passing from COVID. And again, I'm sorry about your mom passing and, and you weren't lying. You also told us that it would cause consternation with crowds. Has that been the case? Yeah, it's always a, it, it was has always been a tough sell initially. I really have to do a lot of uh, massage in terms of you know slowly uh, getting them used to me. Like I do it late in the set so they know me, and um, uh, uh, you know I, I just sort of have to be extra charming. I can yeah. I can turn on the charm if I have to. Doug. Oh, I think the charm's um, always there as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Um, yeah, and because, uh, you know, uh, you got to let people know, hey, it's okay to laugh. I'm the daughter. I'm, you know, I'm allowed to make all these jokes if I want to. And uh, it's my mom, not yours. And, uh, you know, just relax. I got this. Um, she died before the vaccines. And of course, that genuinely does suck. I do wish my mom had lived long enough to turn down the vaccines. <laughs> in an epic seven-paragraph Facebook post (laughs) entitled, I've Done My Own Research. It's been, you know, several years since it happened, and um, I'm sort of used to it, and and, uh, so don't worry about it. That's whenever you're joking about a real death, you have to let the audience know that you are okay and that you're not going to burst into tears in the middle of a joke. Mm-hmm. You know, and then then they relax, but it always it's always tense at first because they're trying to figure out you know what what's happening now. Are you is this going to turn into a eulogy? Or are you going to start crying? 
so uh, you know, it just takes a, it takes a couple jokes to you know massage massage that tension out of the audience, I guess. Mm-hmm. Very well said. You, we first talked um, a few years ago. I guess it would have been I don't know 2018 or so when your book D- Dead People Suck came out, and that was uh, kind of an homage to your your father, the passing of your father. Have you given any thought to writing a book about your mother, or is that been there, done that, and it's still too fresh for you? Um, I do feel like it's a it would hit a lot of the same beats, you mm-hmm. know, a lot yeah. of. You know, I think the thing with my dad was that was my first big death. I was lucky enough where I didn't have it till I was in my 40s, you know. And uh, uh, when you lose the first parent, it is uh, shocking. I'm sure everyone would agree. You you know, you even though you know what's happening, you're, it's going to happen when they're actually not there and they're buried. It's like, what? <laughs> so I think when my mom passed, the shock was more how she passed. It was during a pandemic, during a pandemic. And it, it was such a rare experience at that time. And to have it, you know, have that specter fall on your family. That's also surprising too. It's it's one of those kind of deaths that's so rare. You're like, well, it's, that happens to other people, you know? It's like having a relative on the Titanic or something, right? Mm. You're like that, you know, that's yeah. a very rare thing. Mm. That was a different kind of shock. I don't know if there's a whole book in that. I, I, I and, uh, but toxic, I mean, COVID is such a toxic topic, you know, good luck pitching a COVID story <laughs> to uh, a publisher. Yeah. I guess that's why I haven't heard back from Penguin Random House. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. What is next for Lori Kilmartin outside of mainstreaming the new angry white lady name, Amy Catherine? What else is happening? <laughs> I hope that takes off. This lady and I had a quite an altercation when I my the my bumper tapped her bumper. Listen to it. You can hear about it. I uh I just right now I just have a lot of road work coming up. Uh, you know, working on new material and uh, you know, getting out the old, putting in the new and uh moving, you know, writing new stuff, uh reacting to the current situation of my life, which is my son is a junior in high school and we're getting ready for him to if not leave the house, you know, he might <laughs> go to community college, he'll probably still live with me. But Uh, At least, you know, be more mobile and be more uh, independent. And I'll, you know, when he legally turns 18, I can't even hover over him. So it'll be a change in my single mom life. And maybe I will start dating. (laughs) Ah, Nice. Yeah. Lori Kilmartin. Thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Cis Woke Grief Slut. And thank you for keeping (laughs) it real. Thank you so much, Doug. That was the one and only Lori Kilmartin. Her latest stand-up special is called Cis Woke Grief Slut. Find out more about Lori at WPR.org beta. I grew up very working class. I grew up very angry. And I am a racialized person. Coming up, actor Priya Guns talks about her compelling debut novel, Your Driver is Waiting. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Priya Guns is an actor, activist, and now an author. Her debut novel, Your Driver is Waiting, captures all of that. Born in Sri Lanka and raised in Toronto, Priya's book is a powerful and propulsive social satire. 
The protagonist is a queer Tamil woman named Damani. She cares for her ailing mother and moonlights as an underpaid driver for an Uber-like company. If you're getting kind of a taxi driver vibe right now, congratulations, you are well on the case. Priya's a big fan of Martin Scorsese's movie and Robert De Niro's performance as Travis Bickle. Priya joins us now to talk about Your Driver is Waiting and why Domini, like Travis, is sorting things out behind the wheel. She works for a rideshow driver. You learn in the novel that her father has recently passed away. So she's sort of forced to take more care of her mom, who suddenly has fallen into a serious state of depression and can no longer move. And so this has put a lot of stress on her own finances and reckoning with being at home with her mom. And so she has the stress of being a carer, but also in the city where she lives, it's just exploded with all kinds of protests. Mm-hmm. And you may make a point of not saying which city she's in so that it gives it kind of a universal quality, right? Exactly. And I'm very much a believer in universalism in the specific, but I made that active choice inspired by different cities that I've lived in and inspired by the protests that I've happened to see or be a part of in some way. So that's from experiencing um, living in Istanbul and experiencing um, Gezi protests in 2013. I was very inspired by Thaura, so the uprising we saw in Beirut, Lebanon at the end of 2019. And then, of course, being Tamil, one significant protest that I remember was in 2009 as Tamil people and others gathered in Toronto and in big cities around the world calling for a ceasefire against the genocide of Tamils. So, yeah, kind of seeing how what people were demanding and how people have come together. And I mean, these are just some protests that have inspired the foundation of the city in which this novel takes place, but seeing ultimately that people have gathered angry against something that has to do with the capitalist system and exploitation of workers. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Yeah. Have you yourself worked as a rideshare driver? So this is funny. I don't have my driver's license. I've moved around so much. I can drive. I've driven, um, I can drive a manual car while writing this novel. I took lessons. And it was really funny because I'd have my driving instructor say things like, oh, yeah, you need to think about how your character might drive, uh, focus on the road. And I'm like, no, actually, she's a little unhinged. Um, So I've never driven as a rideshare driver or um, with people in the car. Mm, Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting because you did really good research because, you know, I could have sworn that you had experience. I remember what I wanted to do is I wanted to sit in a few people's cars, but it was during COVID and we were in lockdown. So I couldn't. I did know some drivers and my partner, um, he was a driver and he's from a family of drivers. So, I mean, this is many years of talking about the industry, talking about the shifts from, you know, the taxi industry and then rideshare and traveling. And I mean, immediately just having that connection, being very interested in taxi drivers and drivers and what the situation is like, knowing how the likes of Uber, Lyft and whatnot have affected local companies. You've said that you really get to know characters better in novels compared to television or film. I'm curious, how much do you draw on your acting experience to develop and inhabit your characters? So I initially started taking acting training to help understand dialogue in the context of a novel or in the form of a novel. And I I fell in love with acting from doing that. I feel like for me, The things that I've learned taking acting training and from doing drama in school 
And what is what is required to understand a character for me is how I understand a character and how I begin to write in that voice. So, and I, I do it, I've kind of, upon reflection, I've realized, you know, I was dressing like I would think, I thought Domini would dress. The way I was speaking was very different. And that's because you're, as writing first person, the voice is constantly on until it's off. And I remember when I submitted the final draft, feeling like my shoulders, just having the sense of relief because, oh, I feel like myself again. I know maybe that sounds a bit odd, but that's how it worked for this particular novel for me. Mm. You have an epigraph from A. Sivanandan. Can you share it with us and tell us why you chose this quote? Absolutely. If those who have do not give, those who haven't must take. Sivanandan for me is a very inspiring thinker and he's passed. But I really wanted to set the tone. And I know with fiction, as writers, we can only do so much to guide our readers towards how we wish our work can be interpreted if even we understand <laughs> what it is that we've written. And I had this written on a post-it for myself as well to remind myself of what I wanted to say without actually saying so. Mm-hmm. It's a great quote because it really covers, addresses one of your themes in, in the book is the income, income inequality, which is rampant all over the world these days. I, I think that the relationship between Domini and her mother, Ama, plays an important part in the development of Domini's character. Did you write their scenes together in a different way from the way you wrote the rest of the book? I wrote it, yeah, with a lot of tenderness. There are scenes that are quite explicit um, and Domini really exhibits her rage. And those scenes were very important to me. I wanted to give her that outlet, however absurd and you know controversial perhaps what she does to her mother is. But I think I was touching on experiences that are very real to a lot of people, being first generation, second generation, or a carer. When you are in a position where you are caring for someone who is helpless and incapable at that time to care for themselves. It comes with a lot of emotional strain, um, even physical. One of the reasons Domini decides to take up weight training is because she realized when my mother needed me, I wasn't able to be there. I couldn't physically lift her up. And I wanted, I tried really hard to write those scenes with as much tenderness as I, I think they're, they're owed. Yeah, and you succeeded. They're very tender, and that's that's what I, I those really resonated with me. As did the whole book. So, yeah, you did a great job with that. You are tackling a lot of big ideas like capitalism, racial discrimination, and the class system. How did you manage to pull that off? Did you know you were going to write about such big ideas, or did it kind of happen as you were writing? I think I sort of knew it was going to happen, but also, I mean, that's just how I view the world. I see. I mean, we're living in a capitalist system. I grew up very working class. I grew up very angry and I am a racialized person. And that's not to say if you are a racialized person, you are going to have class consciousness. No, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think you're able to empathize and understand. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with activist friends and artist friends about the intention we put behind our work. You, you know, you can set your intentions, but what ultimately happens when you let go a bit and, you know, let art be art, you kind of lose control and having these conversations of, okay, but if I am the person I am, is that going to reflect through my work naturally? Or is that something you have to try and craft and sculpt? I don't know, but 
I mean, for me, through my lens and seeing the world and understanding it very intimately that there are people who have and there are people who have not, I don't think I can escape particular themes at this point. Mm-hmm. The, the major turning point in your story is when Dominique gives a ride to Jolene. Jolene is not the kind of girl Dominique usually dates. Can you tell us about their relationship? Uh, there's a lot of lust. Their conversation at times is very cringy. It's very strange. I mean, writing it, I was just like, okay, let's go there. Their di- their main difference is not racial. It's about class and position. And Jolene is, you know, well-meaning in her activism. She wants to do the right thing. But in wanting to do the right thing, she's not really thinking about the people who are most affected by whatever it is she's trying to protect or save. Mm-hmm. Just a little aside, I'm just curious, is Jolene, did you name her after the Dolly Parton song? It wasn't um, necessarily named after Jolene in the song, but mm-hmm. um, I do love the song and that sort of happened. And so writing her, yeah, that was playing in the background. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's a great song and Dolly Parton's great. Yeah. One of the most intriguing settings in your novel is a place called Doo-Wop. Can you tell us about Doo-Wop? Duop was very important to me. Um, I wanted, I think, in writing this novel where I was exaggerating some of the things that we're seeing in our current times and critiquing it in my own little way, I think it was only fair to offer some sort of alternative. And Duop for me was the antithesis of this unnamed city, even though it was in the city. It was a possibility. It's something that we do have. It exists every day um, in different cities and countries, and I've, I've seen it. But I really wanted to show what it could look like, what a place could look like with people who come from all walks of life, who are coming to make each other's lives much better, who are organizing and helping each other. How does that exist within a city? And what would it look like? What would it feel like? People come at the end of the day, there's drinks, you know, some guys selling cigars out, they're sat outside and they're talking. A lot of what I saw in Gezi and in Beirut during um, the uprising as well. And what we know, even from the Occupy movement of how people wanted to act what it was they hoped to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's this utopian community. And you said that you're really interested in the idea of reimagining possibilities, reimagining how we protest, what direct action can be and what we do about it. And it would be nice to see more doo-wops spring up, wouldn't it? It would. It would feel very nice to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, there are a few references to Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver in your novel. How much of an influence was Taxi Driver on you? It was a huge influence. Like, I found out I have ADHD. So now I know that, yes, when I managed to watch a film from beginning to end, it's one of my favorites. (laughs) Taxi Driver was one of those films. There's much to critique, um, but there's also so much to praise. Um, It's a classic film. Thinking about Travis Bickle, and thinking about Domini, connecting to his alienation and his rage and finding how it was misplaced. Thinking about reimagining a character, a taxi driver or rideshare driver, and what her rage would be and where her alienation would come from and how it would look. Even though she has lots of friends, she's still dealing. She's alienated and she's isolated. Rideshare drivers, there is no workplace, you know, when you're a gig worker. 
the actual beats in the film and particular moments, I went back to that a lot. I'm very inspired by films that I do love and the way that when I write, I'm seeing a scene played out. Yeah, and I think especially of the scenes where, where Domini is talking to herself in the mirror and also um, when she gets the wild haircut that's reminiscent of Travis Bickle getting the mohawk. You've seen Taxi Driver several times, I believe. How, does it change as you, like, every time you watch it, do you get something different out of it? I think I fall in love with Robert De Niro a little mm. more each time <laughs> and just how well he played Travis. I think his performance was brilliant. Uh, in terms of the writing, yeah, that's always fascinating. But I think um, I haven't seen it in a while now. And I, yeah, I've seen it many times, especially while writing and before writing. It's his performance and the, it's just stellar. I think he does it brilliantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And Scorsese, of course, does a great job directing and the Bernard Herrmann score doesn't hurt either. What was the biggest challenge you faced in writing Your Driver is Waiting? I really wanted to serve every character in the best way possible. I wanted to do them justice, particularly Jolene. I didn't want to make her a caricature, but I also wanted to poke fun at liberalism. <laughs> and performative activism. And I think finding a balance between deciding what parts of a character I want to exaggerate and what parts I want to say very true, that was very important to me. I think the hardest part was um, conceptualizing Jolene and my editors really helped with that. Mm. Yeah, you did a great job with with all the characters. All of the characters are very fully developed and very, you know, have more than one dimension. It's they're, they're really well done. That's one of the strengths, maybe the big strength of, of your book. Priya Guns, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on your driver is waiting. I'm looking forward to the movie adaptation and you starring as Domini. <laughs> Priya Guns is the author of Your Driver is Waiting. Find out more at WPR.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Ed Zwick, Lori Kilmartin, and Priya Guns. They have a lot of zany stuff on this program, don't you think? Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at WPR.org slash beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our technical director and producer is Steve Gotcher. I think it was the bear's voice you heard deep inside him. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. He was a rock they broke themselves against. And thanks to you, our alphas. More Beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. He had always lived in the borderland anyway, somewhere between this world and the other.